Good morning again. Many of you are awake. We're off to a good start. All right. Uh, we're going to be in 2 Thessalonians today, if you want to turn there with us. Uh, that's where we're going to spend uh, a decent amount of our time. That's not the only passage to look at, but that's the main one. I, I had emailed that out on Wednesday, if you had a chance to read through that a couple of times. That's a passage that sometimes can lead to confusion and can lead to questions, and that's good. That's what Bible study exists for, to get our questions answered. So as we read passages of Scripture, we should develop more questions, but then we should dig deeper into the Word to find those answers. So that's a really good thing. Uh, it's a passage, if I'm being completely honest with you, that kind of scares me to preach through. Um, whenever I was taking my ordination exam, um, I, I remember it was a uh, I think it was like an eight-hour process to take. That was my licensure exam, um, and I'm not a I'm not a good uh, taker of tests, and so I was really worried about it. But whenever I got to the the question that said uh, defend your stance and your theology on the return of Christ, um, I could not remember for the life of me what the reference was, and so I wrote down what my where, where I was and what I believed and why, and I uh, wrote down, cited the verses, and I wrote down the wrong reference. And so you have to do a verbal defense of your uh, exam later on. And whenever I did my verbal defense, they were like, hey, we have some questions here about this. You quoted this, this, and this, but you didn't give us the right reference. And I was like, oh, don't like that passage anymore. Uh, so anytime that I, I get into Second Thessalonians, is a part of it that I think has some PTSD. Uh, that I trigger back to that moment where I was getting grilled on our verbal defense of my licensure exam. But I passed, thankfully. I'm here. And, uh, and, but uh, I will say that when it comes to studying Scripture, this is for years, years, uh, an element of preaching and teaching that I tried to avoid. And I'm going to get into why here in a little bit. But uh, I don't know about you, but I have personally gotten a lot out of our time looking at having a bigger view of Jesus. And we've covered some pretty important views of his nature. We've looked at him having an unsearchable nature, a ruling nature, a saving nature, a befriending nature, a persevering nature, an interceding nature. We've looked at all of these things, and I, I, I have enjoyed looking at those through the lens of God's or Jesus' nature, who he is at his core. Like, this is just who he is. And those things cannot be changed based on our behavior. It's just who he is. That's what he is. So a bigger view of Jesus will inevitably change us. Last week we looked at a bigger view of Jesus leads us to gather with a, a greater sense of intentionality. We call that word fellowship. We talked about how a love of Jesus and a, a bigger view of who he is changes the way we process information. Paul tells us in Romans 12 that that process is called the renewing of our minds. He writes it in, in present future tense. And so we have a new heart. We have a new mind. We have a new life. And it's all because of and through Jesus. Which is unbelievable truth. So we cannot look at what we're going to look at today without understanding the deep-rooted reality and, and like great and amazing truth of who Jesus is. Because that's a game-changer. If I only have Jesus as someone who saves me from my sins, 
and is coming back for me someday. And that's where my story of Jesus ends, which, by the way, that was my understanding of Jesus for decades. That I'm going to raise my hand. Jesus will be my savior. I won't have to go to hell. And someday he's going to come back like a thief in the night. And it's going to be terrifying for anyone left behind. Oh, man, I hope I'm not left behind. And then I just lived under this sense of fear over this topic. This constant state of inner anxiety that somehow maybe I missed something and that moment's going to come and the horn's going to blow and planes are going to fall out of the sky and cars are going to wreck and people are going to disappear and there's going to be piles of clothes everywhere and I'm still going to be standing there. So cruel. So cruel. My friend in college, he was a, he was a RA in a, in a dorm hall. And there were some freshmen who moved in. And uh, one night, they all coordinated this. They took all their clothes, and they laid them in piles in the hall. They left water run in the sink. They had it all set up to make it look like they had disappeared. And they all hid at one end of the hall, and someone blasted a trumpet at like 3 o'clock in the morning. And those two poor freshmen came out of the room and thought they missed the rapture. <laughs> right? It's a terrible friend, and yet it's epic at the same time. <laughs> that was my view of this for the longest time. That somehow I was gonna, I missed something. There is like a secret code in here, uh, like a Nicolas Cage movie, and I was gonna miss it. So the whole reason you study the Bible is so that you don't miss something, so that when the trumpet blasts, you don't get left behind. And that's this sense of fear. And I had to wrestle with the reality when I met a very real Jesus and started to wrestle with the reality of the truth of his word. I had to come back to and center myself that it's not the fear of the Lord that leads to repentance. It's his kindness that leads to repentance. And it's the fear of the Lord that leads to understanding. And there's a major difference there. The fear of the Lord, knowing who he is, being in awe and wonder of who he is leads to my understanding, leads to my knowledge base. But it's his kindness that leads me to repentance. So we get so wrapped up in our day-to-day -day routines and our day-to-day -day responsibilities, it's sometimes easy to slip into a world where we forget that Jesus has a promise he hasn't delivered on yet. And it's a big one. We can get so wrapped up in our responsibilities and our day-to-day, -day, and quite frankly, if you're like me, and I think a lot of us are in the same boat, we can get wrapped up in our routines so much so that we just completely go through our day, our weeks, our months, our years, and never give any thought in that time frame to the reality that someday Jesus is returning. It's like a, a subplot of my life, but it's not, it's not something that I look at. It's just kind of like a reality, but I don't have to think about it a lot. But I found myself, as I studied through this, thinking about how different my day-to-day -day might be if I woke up with an eager, excited expectation that today just might be the day that I get to see Jesus. I've talked about it a lot. If you had a chance to meet Tilly, she passed away last year, but she was 91 when she passed away. Uh, and she was just the sweetest woman. And she was a part of our church community. But I remember asking her, how are you doing today? I would call her. There was no such thing as a short phone call with Tilly, by the way. If you called Tilly, it was going to be an easy 30 minutes. 
Um, so he would ask her, how are you doing? How are you doing? And she wouldn't say it that way every time, but she would always say something along the lines of, today might be the day. Today might be the day. And she would break into random prayer, just in the middle of talking. She would just start praying. Oh, Jesus, that you would come back today and heal my frail body and let me see you face to face. And I just would leave thinking, like, I want to be more like that. So today's objective isn't to go through the nuts and bolts of every detail of what we think about the return of Jesus. Today's objective is to look at the reality that he is coming back, but it's a loaded topic in the church today. The American Christians in particular lean toward a total fixation on the return of Jesus, but not in a healthy way. There can be a tendency to fixate on trying to figure out the symbols, and they spend countless hours and dollars working to figure out something that Jesus told us. No one knows. No one knows the day or the hour but the Father. Jesus said that. But there are books written and articles written and countless hours. The Sunday school class at a church I was on staff at did 13 years. 13 years. That class, all they taught every Sunday was Revelation. For 13 years. They were fixated on this. No, the flames coming out of the dragon's mouth in Revelation, those are actually tomahawk missiles. Like That's the kind of stuff that it was fixated on. Anyone have any experience with that kind of thing? No one wants to raise their hand? Thank you. Hallelujah. So today's objective isn't to look at the at, at all the nuts and bolts. It isn't it isn't us like digging in. I am not an expert on that. I am the least qualified person potentially to walk us through every sign and wonder that we see in the book of Revelation. Matter of fact, we're not even gonna go to the book of Revelation today. We want a bigger view of Jesus. So we want to look at the reality that he is returning. But listen, this is something that Jesus himself spoke on often. I found at least a dozen places in the Gospels where Jesus addresses his return in some way, shape, or form. One of those is in Matthew 24. We read this interaction. It's in Matthew 24, 3 through 14. It says this, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That's heavy, right? 
I mean, a case could be made that you're reading this and you could look at this and say, see, Jesus is talking about right now, right here, right now. But he was saying this thousands of years ago. And he was talking to men and women that were sitting around at, on the Mount of Olives, asking him a question, and he was telling them, this was going to happen to you. They're going to hate you. They're going to run you down. They're going to kill you. And they're going to do that because you're associated with me. And it's going to get bad. And people will hate me. And people will turn on one another. And they will hate one another. But the one who endures, the one who sees through all the messiness and all the tribulation and all the trial, the one who sees through all of that and stays faithful to me and understands me and lives out of this good news, those are the ones that are going to see me. Those are the ones that are going to come with me. Basically, what he says is he's referring back to whenever he looks at the disciples and says, if you love me, you will obey me. If you love me, you will adhere to what I'm teaching. You will, you will do what I do. You will say what I say. As our growth in Christ gets bigger, our desire to be with him should grow as well. And that means that we won't be consumed with the signs of something as much as we are consumed with the Savior himself who is returning. I'm not going to spend all of my time reading about and studying about the signs of when Christ comes back so that I can be an expert of telling people what to look for. That seems like a colossal waste of my disciple-making energy. No, I'm going to consume myself in the person of Jesus. And in so doing, I will be eagerly and anxiously waiting for him to come back, to redeem the mess. Does that make sense so far? <clears throat> I want to look at something Paul says in 2 Thessalonians. I think this is going to help us break it down a little bit more. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 12, Paul's writing a church to the church, writing a letter to the church in Thessalonica, and this is what he says. And we're going to get into why he's writing this here in a minute, but listen to what he says. Starting at verse 5, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So I need to zoom in on this a little bit. The evidence, by the way, that Paul starts off, is that this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God. The evidence that Paul's referring to is in verses 3 through 5 when he praises them for their Faith growing abundantly and the love of every one of them for one another is increasing. What he's saying is that in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of trial, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of, of even environmental distress of varying measures, there are people faithfully loving and serving Jesus and being the church. So Paul is starting off by saying this is 
is the evidence that even though you know the judgment of God is coming, you are staying faithful and true to him. That is evidence that this is real to you. So as the church grows in their love of Jesus, what does it do? It leads to healthy rhythms and routines and healthy priorities. Remember Acts 2, 42 through 47? So Paul wrote this letter to the church in Thessalonica shortly after he wrote the first letter to the church in Thessalonica. And this one is to reassure them that the day of the Lord had not yet come. Now there was teaching going around at the time that the day of the Lord had already come and that these people had missed it. They were the recipients of the prank in that hallway. They were the ones who were told they had missed it. The day of the Lord came and went. You were wrong. Now you had to deal with it. That's what they were told. Now there were some that were shuddering under that. They weren't 100% sure what to believe anymore. This all gets told to Paul shortly after he gets his first letter written to them. So he writes a second to address this. And he essentially says, calm down. The day of the Lord has not yet come. There were people telling them that they're essentially their 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 lives meant nothing, and their faith their faith was useless. And Paul writes this letter to remind them of what has to take place before Christ returns. So let's look at some of the things, not so much the symbols, but what happens, because I think it's important for us to look at it. He says in starting uh, in verse 7, And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And you could read that on and on and on. You could be the fire and brimstone preacher that's just letting everybody have it. The good Christians would nod their heads and say amen, and the bad Christians would feel awful about themselves and everyone would be happy. There's a case that some have tried to make that that's where Paul's at. Paul's just kind of in a bad mood, and he's grumpy. And he's letting them say, listen, you stay close to the Lord, let the other one just burn, okay? Who cares about them? There's a case that, is, that has been tried to be made that that's Paul's posture. That is not Paul's posture. Paul does not want anything like that to happen to people who don't know Jesus. Why would he write these letters instructing the church to be the church, to be faithful to the Lord, to live this out? Why would he do that? And then say, no, let those, uh, let those ones over there, like we don't care about them. When you look at this passage, what it speaks to is the reality of life without Christ in the end time. The reality of life without Christ and what that leads to, it leads to sitting under the judgment of a holy God and a just God who has promised since the very beginning of time that sin has to be punished. That's who he is. We're going to look at the nature of a holy God. We have to look at that part, too. He is just. He doesn't lie. So he says sin has to be punished. Now, we don't like to talk about that in the church today because we have adopted a philosophy in the church today 
as long as you have Jesus, and that that's the God of the Old Testament. That's not Jesus. That's the kind of really dangerous theology that is being thrown out today, and it's just not true. There is no God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament. There is just God. So when we see Jesus on the cross, a perfect atoning sacrifice for our sin, it says that God's wrath was poured out on him against sin. And that meant that we had access back to a holy God. That if we believe that Jesus is the all-sufficient, all-atoning sacrifice for our sin, sin that we committed, sin that needs and deserves to be punished and separate us from God for all eternity, that's what sin does. That is the result of sin. It separates us from a holy God. There's no way to get around that. There's no way to fix it on our own. There's nothing we can do. We are left helpless and wandering in the dark for all eternity, separated from God, unless someone intervenes on our behalf. And in steps the beautiful, good news mediator of Jesus that was promised to us as soon as we broke the law in Genesis. Symbols and signs riddled through the whole scripture telling us that we will have a way out. We will have a way back to the Father. That God will provide. That God will give a lamb. God will provide the sacrifice. And then he does. In his own son. So when Jesus is on the cross. And he cries up in heaven. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? It was the only time in the history. Of God and Jesus' relationship. Which is timeless. That God and the son. final judgment of God and we are in Christ we stand before the judge and he sees Jesus' record instead of ours, that is justice if we are not in Christ we stand on our own record before a holy God and that record will condemn us to an eternity separate from him that's what Paul is talking about here, he's saying the day of the Lord has not come because you are not with him if the day of the Lord had come, the evidence that you are that, that it hasn't happened yet, the evidence that, that you're still standing here, that you are still reading this letter, that you are still faithfully serving the church and asking these questions and, and faithfully serving Jesus and loving Jesus and growing and asking these questions and meeting together, that's the evidence that he hasn't come back yet. Because you have been faithful through the tribulations. You have grown. You have sought out his word. You are, you are the picture of what it looks like to pursue Jesus and be followers of Jesus. If this day of the Lord had come, as these liars are telling you it has, you wouldn't be here. So this morning has the potential to raise more questions than answers. And I am by no means an expert on the intricate nature of Christ. There's a term in theology called eschatology, and it refers to the study of the return of Christ. The real purpose of our time looking at this this morning is to live out of the hope that Jesus is coming back. He longs to be with us physically in the same space. 
But he also tells us that it is his desire that none should perish, perish. And that's why he gave us one job before he ascended. You will be my witnesses. And you will go and you will make disciples of all people. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world, you will do what it says in John 13, 34 and 35, a new command I give to you, love one another just as I have loved you. Go and love one another. This is how the world will know you are my disciples, by how you love one another. Jesus gives that command. So when the church gets that, we see the results we see in Acts 2, 42 through 47. The healthy rhythms of a healthy church, the gathering together, the devoted to the teaching of God's word, the sharing of one's resources, uh, the making sure that people aren't in need, the making sure that, that we are worshiping together and we are learning the word and we are, we are gathering whenever we can gather and changes the rhythms of our day to day. But look again at the last part of those verses because at the end of that it says God added to their number those who were being saved. Saved from what? Saved from the righteous judgment of God against sin. When we use that language, are you saved or when did you get saved? That's what we are being saved from. We are getting saved from sitting under the righteous judgment of a holy God who is just and will punish sin. So the work of disciple making was happening in the church in Acts. The work of disciple making was happening and there will come a time when Christ will come back to redeem totally the messy results of sin here. And our job is to love like Jesus so the disciples are made so that when he returns, loads and loads of God's most <laughs> beloved part of creation, people are with him in eternity. Heaven is the presence of God. Physical presence in the physical presence of God for all eternity. That is heaven. The other stuff is just added bonuses. Hell is the absence of God for all eternity. The other stuff, I don't know exactly what it's going to be like, but our world today, I will say, wants to believe that there is no hell. And I can tell you, if you have an argument against the existence of hell, you should take it up with the person in Scripture that talked about it most. Jesus. The existence of an actual literal hell. Now, you could talk about a pit and filled with flames and what that's going to look like, what it's going to feel like, and sulfur and burning embers and all the imagery that's in Scripture. If you can set that aside for a second and just realize that hell is an actual place where you and I could potentially spend our whole eternity, and that place is whenever we dismiss 
the forgiveness of God and the loving nature of God and the good news of the gospel we live for ourselves our entire lives without receiving the saving nature of Jesus, redeeming us from the mess of sin. It leads to, in the end, an eternal separation from a holy God. And that, that period where we can run to Jesus and get his grace we're living in right now is over. God's holy, just wrath for once and for all against sin will, pour, will be poured out. sound like good news. That's just truth. The good news is that that doesn't have to be the end of the story for you and for I. The good news is that we get to be redeemed by the blood of Jesus and we get to tell other people about this. That yes, we're going to live in times that are hard and difficult and wars and nation against nation and brother against brother and, and, uh, and earthquakes and all the things that Jesus even talked about. But we live for a greater promise. Dane Orland says this. Consider it. This is going to happen on an actual day in world history. A certain month, a certain date. It has been fixed. Only God knows. But it is imminent. When it happens, will we not lament our complacency about growing in Christ? Will we not be mystified at how our bank accounts and reputations loom so large in our minds, so much larger than our actual spiritual condition? If we lose sight of a bigger view of Jesus who is returning, we will have a small view of Jesus, and that will elevate a view of ourselves. What people think about us, what our reputation is, what our retirement accounts look like, how much money is in the checking account today, uh, how nice our cards are, how nice our clothes are, how good our reputation is, fill in the blank. I want to be clear. I'm not saying that that stuff is wrong to have any focus on. I'm saying that if Jesus isn't bigger, this stuff will be. If Jesus isn't bigger, everything that falls into the category of not Jesus will get elevated. It will be bigger. Your reputation will matter more. Your job will matter more. Your family will matter more. Your money will matter more. Your vacations will matter more. Your kids will matter more. Your kids' schedules will matter more. Your clothing will matter more. Your house will matter more. Your home decor will matter more. Fill in the blank your hobbies, your interests, all of it. If Jesus is not bigger, something over here is getting bigger. So if the reality that he is getting bigger and viewed bigger in our own hearts, I, I am robustly, you are robustly, we are robustly growing a bigger view of Jesus, that means that things on this side intuitively should shrink. Not the reality of them, but my hyper view of them. The more I love Jesus, the more I see Jesus for his fullness and who he really is, the bigger he is, the smaller this stuff becomes. And if I can wake up tomorrow with a better and robust understanding that someday living out of a bigger view of Jesus and a robust faith means that someday 
someday I get to set aside all the stuff down here that is frustrating to me. The moments like I had this morning when I see my flesh come out and I see a lot less of Jesus and a whole lot more of Adam. And that's frustrating to me. And that battle feels frustrating to me. And that battle feels exhausting to me. And i got to send out one more text to brothers in Christ. Say, hey, pray for my heart this morning. I'm not focused and I want to be. I don't have to do that anymore in the presence of Jesus. I don't have to wrestle with that side of me anymore. I don't have to wrestle with the brokenness of my sin anymore in the presence of Jesus. I get to be whole and perfect in his presence. I get to worship fully. I get to understand fully. I get to see fully. What Paul's encouraging in 2 Thessalonians is whenever you live in the tribulation times and you live in the challenging times and your faith continues to grow and you recognize those frustrations and you still grow to Jesus, that's evidence that he didn't come back yet and he's going to. So take heart. Be encouraged. You're still here. You're still able to draw breath into your lungs. Again, grace of God to even give us that. You're still able to exhale. You're still able to go and do what you're going to do this afternoon. But if we lose sight and have a small view of Jesus, we'll just go on about our day. And the return of Christ will either terrify us so much we'll ignore it, or it won't matter to us at all. We'll just go on about our day, hoping that we checked enough boxes that someday we'll stand before God. And he says, yeah, I guess you're I guess you're good. That's why language like, I got into heaven by the skin of my teeth. I've heard that at funerals before. Uh, he got into heaven by the skin of his teeth. That theology comes from a very poor view of the saving nature of Jesus. That theology and that mindset comes from a very poor view of what it looks like for Christ to return. That theology comes from a very poor view of the God of the Bible that will punish sin. That's not a scare tactic. I don't mean that to like, it actually feels, in our culture, it feels kind of icky to talk about. But it's real. But I want to have a hyper view of the reality of God's judgment over sin. I want to have a hyper view of the reality that I don't sit under it anymore because of Jesus. I want a hyper view and a hyper uh, understanding of it. I don't sit under that, therefore I have nothing to fear. I don't have to fear God in a, in a scared, hiding from him way, like Adam and Eve did in the garden. No. He loves me. He once and for all time justified me, made me right because of Jesus. And now I stand before God, guilt-free, with the record of Jesus, his righteousness, clothing me. That's our story if we're in Christ. How different would my day be tomorrow if I lived under the reality that he's returning? If I made that a hyper focus of my day, oh God, maybe this will be the day I get to see your face. So here's some takeaways. Some things that I wrestled with as I looked at this passage. I looked at this topic. One, a bigger view of Jesus leads to a bigger desire to be the church. A bigger view of Jesus leads to a bigger desire to be the church. 
Not go to church, not attend church. Be the church. Community matters. The Matthew passage we looked at at the beginning of our time together said that the gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. And God's delivery mechanism for that good news is the church. A bigger view of Jesus leads to a bigger desire to be the church, whatever that looks like for you. Uh, you and I have to figure that out. The renewing of our minds means we change the way we think, the way we process information, the way we do our family calendars. We're about making disciples more and more, which means we clear the schedule over here so that we have more room to make disciples over here. Or we alter it. I'm still going to do this thing. I'm still going to go to work. I'm still going to be a part of these responsibilities. But my whole existence is about making disciples. Community matters. Jesus himself said that. The gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. Second takeaway. Jesus is coming back. This is not a fearful thing for those who are in Christ. This is the culmination of the gospel. This is the culmination of the good news. We get to be with Christ for all eternity. We get to enjoy the bounty of a sinless existence with Christ. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? I mean, if, if nothing else, I'm going to add a little caveat assignment to you today. If you don't mind having a little homework. Take some intentional time today, at some point, to just sit and think about what tomorrow would look like, what the rest of today would look like, if you didn't have the capability to sin. Not a sinful thought, not a sinful desire. That you had the ability to just worship God in fullness without wrestling with any parts of your flesh. Listen, if that thought doesn't marinate in you and lead to worship, reorient yourself around it again and circle back. Because that is an amazing reality. That's the culmination of the good news. Presence with God. We are in his presence for eternity. We won't have to wrestle with sin anymore. And then out of that, what do we do when Jesus? Knows, we know Jesus is coming back? We tell others this good news. We tell others this good news. We don't stand on a soapbox and yell at people. No, we love them. We love one another. And by the way, we love one another and treat one another and treat the people around us and interact with the people around us, they will know that we belong to him. That means that when we are really and truly in Christ, to love one another means that everything about me has the opportunity to point people back to Jesus. What you post on social media has the opportunity to reorient people around Jesus. What you comment, what you, what you follow, what you devote your time to, what is most important to you, the what you watch, all of those things, as God renews our minds, all of those things have the opportunity to show the love of Christ out to a watching world. Jesus is coming back. Our job is to make disciples. When that good news infects us, I believe it becomes so contagious that it starts to dictate how we move and navigate through our day over and over again. And we catch ourselves like, like we, like we catch ourselves in these moments of wanting to give over to sin or giving over to sin, the, the good news reorients us again. Part of the beauty of being at church is when those moments come, you have people you can text or call and say, hey, pray for me. I'm in a bad spot right now. 
Hold me up. Hold me accountable. Lead me back to Jesus. Point my gaze back to him. Jesus is coming back. And the third thing, if it's not today, we're still one day closer. If it's not today, we're still one day closer. I was thinking through this passage, and I was thinking of a, an image that's kind of burned into my head. And uh, we went to Longwood Gardens with Sue, with Bowie. And we told the kids about it that morning. And uh, that morning, at some point, I was outside doing something, and Josie was sitting in the front yard. And I was like, Josie, what are you doing? And she's like, I'm waiting for Miss Sue. She's going to be here for like six hours. <laughs> and I think in her little mind, she was completely fine with that. She was completely fine. She would have sat in that yard all day just waiting for Miss Sue to pull in the driveway. Because that meant she got to go to Longwood Gardens. And she didn't even know Longwood Gardens was. <laughs> she just knew we were going somewhere with Sue, and that was exciting to her. But Sue wasn't there yet, so she was just living out of the promise. She had a backpack full of stuff. Such random stuff. <laughs> Absolutely none of it is essential to go to Longwood Gardens, by the way. Or anywhere, for that matter. She just sat there. If we tell her that her cousins are coming to visit and it's raining outside, she'll sit on her bay window all day. Now she, she will take breaks. But she wants to see the promise fulfilled. And it changes how she spends her time. It changes how she sees the world. It's not today. We're still one day closer. What does it look like for us to live in eager expectation just like our dear friend Tilly did? Oh, Lord, maybe today's the day. This is not something to be kept to ourselves. This is not just our personal faith journey or our personal relationship with Jesus. This is something to be shared with the world. It's not today. We're still one day closer. If the Lord doesn't come back today, maybe he'll come back tomorrow. How amazing would that be? But if he doesn't come back today, that means my neighbors, who I know don't know Jesus, need to have a little bit more time to show them the love of Christ. But if I lose sight in a small view of Jesus that he's coming back, I won't have a sense of urgency about my day. I'll just have a checklist of stuff I have to get done before I can go to bed. What does it look like to have a bigger view of Christ's returning nature? Well, to have a bigger view of Jesus. Out of that, man, just a longing and a desire to be with him. To be near him. To not have to deal with the separation anymore. If you've ever had to do a long-distance relationship, I think you know what I'm talking about. Just felt like the world was better. When I was, we were a year away from getting married, and Meg would come in from school to, to stay where I was living for the weekend. And there would be a part of me like I couldn't focus on work because I knew she was coming after school was right out in Ohio. And she'd drive me there. She'd probably, man, she's probably crossing into Wheeling, West Virginia right around. Okay. I was like, all day. I just couldn't wait. 
conversation that what was in my mind and in my heart felt like it needed to be in the same place. Like it didn't feel right that I loved her that much and I had to be in a different state from her. It didn't feel right. So it was just this eager expectation that at some point we were gonna we were gonna be able to be in the same place. And when she was, it just felt better. What does it look like for me to love Jesus even more than that? I should feel like there's something kind of missing here because I have his presence in me. I have his spirit in me. I have it to guide me and lead me. And I have his word to teach me and instruct me. I have prayers to communicate with him. But at some point in time, I'm going to get an embrace from him, like a physical embrace from Jesus. It's going to hold me up.